a read all about it. Podcast tackles controversies that define your world. Listen to Indubitably now. Extra, extra, read all about it. Welcome to this week's episode of Indubitably. My name is, as usual, Josh. And I'm Kelly. Also, as usual. (laughs) Oh, sometimes I want to switch it up. Who knows? Today, we'll be covering a current event. It's been a little bit buried under the news of Ukraine, but it's certainly impactful and well worth everybody knowing about. Mm -hmm. In case you missed it, at the end of last month, President Biden presented his nomination for the United States Supreme Court. Yes, he has nominated Ketanji Brown-Jackson to replace uh, Justice Stephen Breyer, who announced his retirement earlier this year. So that happened last month, but we're not late because she still has to go through the confirmation process, which Democratic leadership is hoping will be finalized and she will be confirmed as the new Supreme Court justice by the April 11th recess. That's the goal anyway, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I, I think it seems realistic this time around, as opposed to some other nomination processes, which we'll be talking about later. Mm -hmm. And this is a pretty big deal. The Supreme Court is the highest tribunal in the nation. And this is for all cases and controversies arising under the Constitution or laws of the United States. And there's some pretty famous cases that the Supreme Court has heard. And even if you're not necessarily sure what they are about, you've probably heard some of the names. For instance, there is Dred Scott v. Sanford, where the Supreme Court determined that Congress could not prohibit slavery and that African-Americans had no right to sue in federal court. It essentially codified the idea that slaves were property. That was a significant decision that fueled the flames that eventually led to the Civil War. So needless to say, even though we entrust the Supreme Court as the highest tribunal in the nation, sometimes they mess up. Another example that Everybody's probably heard the name before is Miranda v. Arizona, and that established the requirements for police to advise people in custody of their rights to remain silent and to an attorney, commonly referred to as the Miranda warnings. And then finally, a personal favorite of mine, Mm. Roe v. Wade in the 1970s, which upheld the rights of women to have access to an abortion under the auspices of medical privacy. So some of these nominations and procedural debates that we will be discussing in this episode that might seem far removed from the average citizen's daily lives, they can result in very real, very tangible and life-altering consequences. Yeah, I think sometimes it can be easy to read the news and some new judge is, is being appointed to some new court or some person in Congress or the Senate filibustered or delayed the process. It, it seems that these are things that are going on in Washington, D.C., Not really something that I have to worry about, but almost everybody is going to be affected in one way or another by the decisions that the Supreme Court makes in at least minor and sometimes life-changing ways. If nothing else, what would the cops on law and order have to say when they arrest people? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Or uh, I'm thinking of every show with every skeezy criminal that I wasn't Mirandized and that's the way that I got out of committing this crime that we all know they did. Every time that a new justice is brought onto the court, the balance of that court potentially changes. And along with it, the laws and rights of all U.S. citizens as well. Right. So speaking of Roe v. Wade, there is some speculation that with the appointments that Trump was able to make, that that law in particular, or at least parts of it, might come under attack in upcoming years. 
And for some specificity here, Trump was able to replace three judges on the Supreme Court during his four years in office. The first was he replaced Antonin Scalia with Neil Gorsuch, which honestly wasn't that big of a deal in terms of changing the balance of the court. He did replace a conservative originalist. We'll talk about what that means later for another conservative originalist. He then was able to replace Anthony Kennedy with Brett Kavanaugh. This one was slightly more impactful, maybe more than slightly impactful, Mm -hmm. uh, because it was able to replace a swing voter in Anthony Kennedy, um, considered moderate, but probably on the liberal side of things with a relatively firm conservative option. And then the most impactful that happened most recently was the replacement of Ruth Bader Ginsburg with Amy Coney Barrett, who are probably as far from each other on the political spectrum as you can get. Yeah. I'm not a big fan of a lot of these decisions. (laughs) And there was, yeah, there was a lot of criticism for, you know, posthumously directed at Ruth Bader Ginsburg saying that potentially instead of waiting for her passing, she should have retired during Obama's presidency to ensure that he would be able to replace her with somebody that was more in line with her political leanings. I don't know that that would have even made a difference. Remember, Antonin Scalia died while President Obama was in office, and his confirmation replacement uh, Mm -hmm. was stonewalled. Merrick Garland, I'm sure we'll talk a little bit more about confirmations in this episode. But I don't know that if Ruth Bader Ginsburg had retired, the GOP would have let him replace her. Mm, That's true. But whatever the hypotheticals are, the reality of the situation was that Trump was able to swing the court one and a half spots further conservative. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure how that's that's exactly how math works, but y'all get the point. In contrast to that, we do have now, uh, as you mentioned, Katanji Brown-Jackson uh, being nominated by President Biden. And upon her probable confirmation, she will be replacing Justice Breyer And this is more similar to a Scalia for Gorsuch switch because we do have a liberal judge replacing a liberal judge. So this won't do quite as much to change the balance of the court. But again, anytime one of these judges who is appointed and served for life is changed, it's a pretty big deal. It's a pretty big deal if the balance that currently exists on the court can be maintained as well. As we saw with Trump, he was able to alter it fundamentally. Biden being able to maintain it would also be pretty noteworthy. Brown is in the stage where she has been nominated by President Biden, but then in order for her to be confirmed, she has to pass through the Senate confirmation hearing. How likely is it that she gets through that process? This is a hard one. I think that ultimately the pundits agree that this is a probable but not certain confirmation. There are plenty of things that are in her favor. She has been nominated once before by President Biden to replace Merrick Garland in the U.S. Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia Circuit, and she received bipartisan votes for that confirmation. In fact, she was confirmed three times by the Senate in total with bipartisan votes in her favor for progressive like federal judge appointments. Mm -hmm. She also has a desirable background for the composition of the court. She has the Ivy League background that many justices have. And she also clerked for Justice Breyer, um, which is pretty important as she understands his mindset as a justice and learned from an actual sitting Supreme Court justice. In general, with the support that she's had in the past and 
certainly the qualifications that she has. Pundits are saying it's unlikely that she won't get confirmed. Unlikely doesn't mean definitely, though. With the current Senate composition, there are 50 Republicans, 48 Democrats, and two independents who both typically caucus with the Democrats. So it's possible if everybody votes along party lines that she will have a 50-50 split. And then arguably, but probably, that means that Vice President Kamala Harris would cast the deciding vote. And of course, she would almost certainly be voting to confirm Biden's nomination. There are still questions about whether or not the GOP would actually vote to confirm her as they previously did for other appointments, because then they would be collaborating with the Biden administration in a different way than they had before. So I don't anticipate that there are going to be many Republican votes in her favor, maybe some abstentions, which would essentially give way to her confirmation. I think that's the balance for a lot of Republicans. If they just abstain from the vote, then that gives the Democrats the majority that they need and she gets through. I I think that in general, the parties need to pick their battles of when they want to push back and when they want to let things through. And honestly, this seems like a pretty straightforward case where not really where they want to draw a line in the sand if you're a, a Republican. That's not to say that this nomination didn't come without some controversy. The uh, elephant, no pun intended, in the room is that a Black woman serving on the court would be groundbreaking, and a lot of typically hidden biases might come out in this process. It will be interesting to see how the confirmation hearings proceed to see what kinds of questions are being asked of this nominee that may not have been asked of previous nominees. The discourse might be altered quite a bit, especially considering the way that Biden introduced how he was going to nominate this vacancy on the court. Before he even told us who it was going to be, he said it was going to be a Black woman, meaning Mm -hmm. he put identity first before qualifications, which I think alters the discussion quite a bit. Mm -hmm. Yes, certainly the Supreme Court has been diversifying itself in recent years. It's not just a whole bunch of people that look like me anymore, Um, which is great. But the way that people have done it in the past is they have introduced a specific person who happened to be of a minority gender or racial background, rather than what Biden did was we are going to pick this African-American woman in this case with, yeah, without knowing who that was going to be. Does seem a little bit backwards from how it was done in the past. And the way that it could be perceived and has been perceived by some folks is that this is tokenism, that he's just filling a certain racial and gender quota by ensuring that it was going to be a Black woman, rather than saying, I'm going to pick the most qualified nominee, and she just happens to also be a Black woman. And it's, I think it's especially problematic with Biden because there's a, there's a pretty easy question of, did he just do it for political points? Because he did make this announcement before it's not just before he had a specific name in mind, it's before he even knew that there was going to be a vacancy, right? He made this announcement during his campaign for presidency alongside of his claims, which he followed through with, uh, that he was going to have the first female VP in Kamala Harris. But it's hard to look at somebody who has the political record of Biden and think, that these are legitimate decisions that he really believes in rather than just politically expedient for him. 
perhaps we should disregard what his intentions are and just focus on what this would mean for the court to have this type of composition, this type of representation. This would be so fundamentally different than the court has ever looked before, which I think is a very positive change. And regardless of what points Biden gets out of it, this is a major step for women and for minorities in this country. It is a big step. And there's some people who are asking if we just keep adding women to the Supreme Court, at what point where there'll be enough women on the bench? Perhaps when there are nine of them. <laughs> I set you up for that softball there. A famous mm-hmm. quote by uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, uh, who, was, who was asked exactly that question. At what point would there be enough women on the bench? And she says, when there are nine. A legitimate point, as she argues that having nine men on the court was a satisfactory number in 1981. Why not shift that to nine women? Not necessarily saying that's the best idea in the world, but we certainly had the opposite for a long time. I was going to make a joke, but it'd probably be bad. Well, now you have to make the joke. Why not have nine women? Because then they just be talking about their hair and shopping. (laughs) Oh my God. I do think though, one of the points that you brought up a bit ago is legitimate. Whereas even if diversity on on the Supreme Court and a panel that is more representative of the general makeup of our country is a good idea. Is it a good policy to reinforce the idea that you're your identity first and that you can't separate your decisions from the quote, I don't know, team that you're on versus seeking the truth or constitutionality of something in a nonpartisan matter? Judge Brown has said that she looks solely to the law when she makes decisions. But I think it's understandable and impossible to avoid that lived experience will impact interpretations of the law. Right. And if the, if it doesn't, then what's the point of diversity? Mm-hmm. That's a little bit contradictory to champion the idea that we have an identity on the Supreme Court that hasn't existed previously, but then expect that identity to vote as a blank slate. I feel like you either have to have one or the other. There is no robot court yet that just is fed controversy and spits out a decision. Right. And that's a debate in and of itself of whether they should be robots or whether they should be able to express their identity, their lived experiences in their decisions. Oftentimes, the court cases that are presented to the Supreme Court have to do very directly with identity. We mentioned Dred Scott. There was also obviously Brown versus the Board of Education and Obergefell versus Hodges in 2015, guaranteeing the right to marry to same-sex couples. So maybe this is all just recognizing the reality of the matter that the Supreme Court has become a political branch of government rather than an impartial one. While the court has always been intended to be an impartial aspect of the federal government, It perhaps has always been at least a little bit political, and it's important to evaluate how political and whether or not that's appropriate. And maybe how that identity is shifting over time. There are some people that would argue it's more political now than it used to be, but I think that's definitely something worth looking at. So let's start with what's the job of the Supreme Court? As the final arbiter of the law, the court is charged with ensuring the American people the promise of equal justice under law and thereby also functions as guardian and interpreter of the Constitution. So 
How do they do that? Traditional ideas of law hold that judges and justices make decisions based on a dispassionate application of the law to the facts at hand, with no regard for the political ramifications of that decision. So certainly in theory, the idea is in order for justice to be blind, they should not be taking into consideration their identities or political leanings in the decisions that they make. I find it interesting that they shouldn't be regarding the political ramifications of those decisions when Supreme Court sets so much legal precedent that it's got to be impossible to think about a decision without the ramifications of what that decision will mean for subsequent cases and laws around the country. Mm -hmm. I think the idea is that maybe they are supposed to think about ramifications as far as precedent being set and interpretation of the Constitution, for example, but not thinking about the ramifications that might happen to the balance of political power in society or certain groups that are advantaged or disadvantaged. It's really interesting considering that they literally decided a presidential election. (laughs) This is true. Well, That's part of the reason I think that was so controversial. Mm -hmm. One of the things that we can look at is there are different ways of measuring where on a spectrum from conservative to liberal certain decisions lie, and then plotting out over time the various justices, the decisions they've made, and then that shows us what the spread of the court is. So there is a chart that plots out the Martin Quinn scores, which is one way of measuring these things. And it shows, again, over time, which direction the court has had a tendency of leaning. And what's interesting here is I I don't think that the spread of the court from the most conservative member to the most liberal member has changed much over time, but the distribution has certainly changed. I think we'll probably post this graph because obviously it's hard for people to see it over a podcast. We'll post it uh, in our Facebook and Twitter groups, which by now everybody knows are at Indubitably Pod, but just so our listeners can see what we're talking about here. And What's happened, though, is over recent times, the distribution, rather than being sort of evenly spread throughout conservative to liberal, is very bunched up at either end. So the most recent year that's been plotted shows five justices that are relatively solid in the conservative category and four that are relatively solid in the liberal category, as opposed to even distribution throughout the middle of the two. That, that could be an argument just statistically, that the court is politicizing? This graph does point to a lot of interesting data, but it is important to note that at this point in time, it barely indicates the tenure of Justice Barrett. And with the way that the court is proceeding, we're going to see a lot more conservative decision-making coming out of it as a result of there essentially being six justices on the conservative end of the spectrum. Mm -hmm. So that 5-4 split that this shows is most likely going to look more like 6-3 moving forward. Mm -hmm. Even still, despite the obvious majority of conservative justices, the overall effect of there still being liberal justices means that there is a moderating effect and the court itself is not as conservative as its most conservative member. I also think that it's important to note that while most people talk about the leanings of the court on a scale from conservative to liberal, there are other judicial philosophies that provide important identities to the members on the court and might be worth discussing. So for example, 
We mentioned uh, Antonin Scalia was replaced by Neil Gorsuch, both of which not only are slash were conservative justices, but are also originalists. So important to note that the philosophy of originalism is the idea that the Constitution should be interpreted as perceived at the time of enactment and is typically linked with the idea of textualism, which is the idea that statutes should be interpreted literally without considering the legislative history or underlying purpose of the law. Coincidentally, or maybe by design, that seems to have led Scalia and now Gorsuch to conservative opinions. But the argument would be that they're not making conservative opinions because they're conservative, but they're making it because this is their judicial philosophy and they are originalists. And that just happens to lead them to conservative outcomes. I've known some folks in law school who I would consider liberals who ultimately respected that in a way that they knew where Scalia was coming from, that he was consistent, and that it really did not indicate an ideological bent, but just the consistency of his paradigm at work, which for people who study the law, it's kind of nice to have someone predictable to look to. Mm-hmm. And definitely predictability in legal matters is a benefit that's that's afforded by originalism. This is in contrast to the idea that the Constitution is a living thing, or also known as judicial pragmatism. And this would be the claim that the Constitution holds a sort of dynamic meaning that can evolve or adapt to new circumstances, even if the document is not formally amended. So for for people who hold this belief, the Constitution is said to develop alongside of society's needs and provide a more malleable tool for governments. This might be the idea that the Second Amendment ensures that I get to own an automatic weapon, even though the Second Amendment was written before automatic weapons existed. (laughs) Right. So this is certainly an argument in favor of a a more flexible view of the Constitution. Uh, It's hard to guess the And literally, it would be that. It would be guessing the intention. This is something we did discuss in our Second Amendment episode. It's hard to guess what the intention of the framers would be when they're writing about technology that they probably couldn't even imagine ever being invented. But that's what Scalia tried to do. And that's what Gorsuch tries to do as originalists when they make their decisions. An additional philosophy that is also quite interesting is the political process theory. This argues that judges should focus on maintaining a well-functioning democratic process and guard against systemic biases in the legislative process. Political process theory advocates believe that the best approach of constitutional interpretation is one of representation reinforcement, i.e. improving the democratic process. Proponents believe that judges who reinforce representation play the best normative role. So this theory would argue that what we're identifying as politicization of the process is actually a positive thing, that judges don't need to be dispassionate. It's fine for them to bring in their own identity, their own lived experiences, and form a Supreme Court that is more representative of the populace for whom they're making decisions and determining law. This idea makes a lot of sense. I think it's impossible for people to leave who they are at home when they go to work in any circumstance. I think that's true when you're a Supreme Court justice or you're a person who sells cars. You're still who you are. You carry your lived experience with you in every aspect of what you do. 
Mm-hmm. And this is certainly a justification for the most recent nomination and even for Biden's stance during the campaign of regardless of who the individual is, they are going to be African-American and they are going to be female. This sort of theory would place that as a, a very real and very legitimate reason to choose someone. With all of our understanding now about what's at stake with the current nomination in the Supreme Court and some of the different ways in which the court has operated, there are some discussions about whether the court should be changed in other ways as well, not just in terms of membership. And does it actually need some reform, what those possibilities could be? The last eight or so years have certainly been contentious when it comes to the makeup of the Supreme Court, nomination processes, etc. And so I'd say three major ideas that we want to tackle have come about as far as possible modifications to the court. The first one would be a potential expansion of the court. The second would be implementation of term limits. And third would be just an examination, I think, of the confirmation process. And if we're if we're saying the court is politicized, the confirmation process is most certainly politicized. It's become a bit of a circus. Starting with the idea of expanding the court, a lot of people may be unaware that the Supreme Court's composition that is currently at nine justices was not always the case. And it has expanded and contracted previously throughout the years, ultimately settling on nine justices in the 19th century. For most of the time, it was six justices. It's expanded up to the nine. And typically, this was done as the country grew. And that was the argument for it. We need more justices to handle a bigger workload. But it's also been done at politically advantageous times each time there was an expansion. So two of those expansions, for example, were both when Congress and the White House synced up. So when Democratic Republicans were in control, they uh, were able to allow Jefferson to add a member. And a few years later, when Democrats were in control and Andrew Jackson was president, he added two more to get to the nine that we have today. So in the Constitution, Congress does have the right to increase the size of the court. This isn't just some crazy idea out of left field or right field to to stay nonpartisan. (laughs) Out of center field. There we go. Perfect. (laughs) Some of the proposals are very interesting, but the probably most common idea of what the expansion of the court would look like would be just add more justices, just add four justices and see what happens. Right. And four is the number because this is Democrats just being salty that they lost, you know, six years ago and that Trump was able to appoint three justices. So now, as we've mentioned, the balance is, for the most part, six conservatives, to three liberals. So if Democrats just add four of their own now, hey, guess what? We're winning seven to six. They're winning until the Republicans have power again in both the presidency and in Congress and then can add four more and rebalance it back to their side of the political spectrum. Well, they would only have to add two, but (laughs) why wouldn't they just add four? They're very extra. Let's just add 20. And this is kind of the problem is if we start down this road, it's sort of this never ending process of uh, just leapfrogging over the previous party to try to maintain a majority in a Supreme Court where it's acceptable to just vote on issues along party lines rather than dispassionately. This is kind of like the filibuster. I hate it when the other party does it, but I'm absolutely going to use it to my own advantage. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah. So this is definitely something that's out there. And I think that with some of the tactics, speaking of filibuster, 
that Republicans used during Trump's tenure to get those three new justices, some Democrats feel justified in taking an approach like this. But I think there's other more reasonable suggestions that still would expand the Supreme Court. Yeah, there are a lot of different ideas. One in particular that's quite interesting is Pete Buttigieg suggesting that there are 15 justices total, and not just that there are 15 that have, you know, the normal nomination and confirmation process, but he suggested that 10 justices would be divided equally between those affiliated with one or the other of the two major parties, and those 10 would select five more. So we'd have five democratically appointed justices five Republican appointed justices, and that group of 10 would select five of their own to add to their ranks. And the idea here, because obviously 15 15 judges weighing in on a specific issue is probably a little bit unwieldy, the idea would be that panels of justices drawn from that group would be overseeing each particular case with an option of review if for whatever reason they thought that the panel was lopsided or came to the wrong decision. Uh, with the option of review from the court at large. Exactly. And the effort would be to depoliticize the court. And Pete, Mayor Pete, as I call him, added that we can't go on like this, where every single time there is a vacancy, we have this apocalyptic ideological firefight over what to do next. And this might be a, a better approach, as he points out, than just every time Congress falls in line with the White House and they happen to be in the minority of justices on the Supreme Court, they're just going to keep adding more and more every time. Then we're going to have a Supreme Court with 100 people on it. But more is better. It's the American way. Bigger, better. <laughs> larger, better. There, There is an argument. Again, as I pointed out, when the Supreme Court was expanded in the past, there is an argument for easing the workload on the justices that do exist. So this would be completely non-political, but just the idea there's such a backlog of cases that exist right now. Currently, the Supreme Court hears between 100 and 200 of the 7,000 cases that are requested of them. And considering, as we mentioned at the beginning of the episode, a lot of these cases are very defining in terms of the impact they can have on people's lives, expanding out the Supreme Court would just make it more reasonable that they're able to hear some of these issues. I wonder, though, if they are having these subsets of the larger court and they're taking on more of these cases than they do currently, could separate panels out of this larger court end up hearing similar cases to each other and coming up with contradictory decisions? Hmm. Well, I mean, I, I guess there's still the the same procedures that have to be gone through now for them to accept a case and hopefully they would figure that out. <laughs> but a lot of these cases get very nitpicky. We talked about uh, right to abortion, for example, and there's so many fine details of this is the point in the pregnancy where it's allowed. This is the point in the pregnancy where it's not allowed. Here's circumstances that make it acceptable and not. So certainly there's a potential for conflict there in a lot of these issues. I just think that the government is typically a little bad at multitasking. We're going to see a case where the Supreme Court goes up against the Supreme Court. (laughs) It's going to be Supreme Court panel A versus Supreme Court panel B. That would make a great movie. (laughs) Adjudicated by Supreme Court panel C. (laughs) We could make the decision for them. That'll be our next episode. Mm -hmm. So there are some legitimate motivations for expanding the court, but with the political processes that would have to be gone through to do it, more than likely 
it would not be done in the fairest manner. I think that's reasonable to say. Another idea that we brought up is the idea of term limits. So the Supreme Court right now, the justices serve for life, many of them literally being on the court until the day that they die, in the case of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And some people have proposed that one person being on the court for that many years makes them a bit irrelevant. Right. This would be a change that requires a constitutional amendment instead of just being approved by Congress, which is a pretty hefty legal requirement. And there is also a question of what happens with the members of the court who are currently on it, who do have those lifetime appointments and their new colleagues don't have those lifetime appointments. It might create some inequity in the operations of the court. Mm -hmm. One of the advocacies for people who are suggesting term limits is that the justices are up for an 18-year term. So they still have a pretty long term that's insulated from a lot of the political changes. One of the reasons they have a lifetime appointment is to insulate them from politics. And then after they've served those 18 years, if the justice wishes, they can serve on a lower court to honor the constitutional promise of tenure as long as they have, quote, good behavior. <laughs> Go to your room. You've been you've been bad, Gorsuch. <laughs> or yeah, maybe we should say you've been bad, Kavanaugh. Too oh, soon? <laughs> no, not too soon. He needs, not, he knows what he did. Too late. Anyway, to me at least, this makes a lot of sense. Honestly, it's the same criticism that I have on a personal side note with the nominations for president being as old as they are. I think that the people who are leading our country, whether it be presidents or Supreme Court justices have to be in touch with the modern state of affairs in the country. For example, having somebody who's 75 years old either propose or adjudicate on legislation that has to do with uh, the internet and the rights and challenges that come along with that is a little bit weird. I don't know. There are plenty of tech-savvy 75-year-olds now. <laughs> well, if you've seen any of the hearings with the Google CEO, in front of Congress, none of them are in our government. Do you promise to end Finsta? <laughs> I'll do whatever if you put me on the Supreme Court. <laughs> but the idea of these justices serving for life, while, do, while it does provide a sense of consistency, it makes it really difficult to feel as though we're getting accurate rulings on technology or lifestyles or identities or just trends in society that are shifting relatively quickly. Like even 18 years is a really long time if you think about it, if you compare the society we have today to 18 years ago, and then you think that these justices can be serving for 30 or 40 years, the, the world just looks different than it did that many years ago. I don't know that you're going to be getting a guarantee of a younger court even still if you have these term limits. Justice Brown, when she's confirmed, becomes Supreme Court Justice Brown, is in her 50s, which is younger than a lot of the other justices that have served on the court, but is still not relatively young. And we don't know how tech savvy she is or how with Finsta and Instagram and all of the tech, I don't know what the kids like. I We don't, we're, we're already old and she's <laughs> older than we are. Speak for yourself. But for example, so if, if she's nominated or she's confirmed at 50 years old um, and Ruth Bader Ginsburg lived until 87 years old, that's still 37 years of service, which is over double, if my math is correct. 
what 18 years would be. So I do think there's a substantial benefit in terms of ensuring some sense of modernity if these term limits were put in place. A justice is on the court to interpret the laws of the land and hear controversies about those laws. I think that allows for them to become well acquainted with the modern circumstances within which those laws exist. Mm, I guess. But in response to that, Clarence Thomas. What about him? Guy's been around for a long time, but he hasn't been around for a long time, if you know what I mean. Regardless of the technical capabilities of the justices, what is interesting about the 18-year terms is that if implemented on a rotating schedule, that would produce a new vacancy once every two years, which would mean, barring any unanticipated openings such as a retirement or an untimely death, there would be a chance every two years to have a new confirmation hearing. And when they're that frequent and that much more predictable, they could potentially become a lot less contentious than they are currently. There would be just less at stake every single time and a more equitable process, perhaps, because if not this time, then we'll get the next justice or whatever. Right now, it's a very high stakes arrangement. Mm -hmm. It certainly would be more equitable in terms of who nominates. Um, And also, interestingly, potentially more democratic too. If you win the White House, then you also get the option to nominate two Supreme Court justices. And if you lose it next year because you done messed up, you lose the right and the other party gets the right to to nominate two Supreme Court justices. But this all assumes that I, I think it would have to come with a stipulation that whoever is president at the time is the one that gets to nominate and no filibusters happen delaying that process until the next president comes in that's more in line with the party who attempts to filibuster and basically meddle with this proposed process. So this couldn't happen until after Mitch McConnell dies. (laughs) Yeah. So I guess this leads us into our last type of reform, which is not necessarily a reform to the Supreme Court, but rather Uh, reforms that might be necessary for the confirmation process. One of the more contentious Supreme Court nominations in recent history is when Antonin Scalia passed away. President Obama nominated Merrick Garland to replace him on the court. Unfortunately for President Obama, Mitch McConnell in particular, but the Republicans in general, said that it would be inappropriate to move forward on a Supreme Court nomination before a midterm election. Right. This this happened towards the end of Obama's presidency. And this was McConnell's justification for delaying it, that an outgoing president should not have a say or not have the capacity to nominate a Supreme Court justice. Which is a ridiculous type of assertion, considering if you are president, the Constitution gives you the right to nominate a Supreme Court justice when there's a vacancy. And there's never an asterisk next to that. Unless it's 180 days from the end of your term. I rule. (laughs) He looks like an evil turtle. Yeah, a lot of people have said that. The real purpose of the Supreme Court operating like it does is to insulate it from politics. That's why there are no term limits. That's why it has nine people on it rather than just one person to make sure there's a diversity of opinions and people on the court. And in doing so, the 
the court itself, the nomination process at least, is one of the most political debates that happens in this country. It is the most political thing ever to be able to steer the membership of the court. Like we said at the beginning of this episode, I think that there are probably people out there who might not see what a big deal this is and what kind of real impact it can have on their lives. But certainly McConnell, Pelosi, whoever uh, in the Senate and in the House understand that the ability to place somebody for life onto the Supreme Court who's going to be able to steer their platform for the next 40 years potentially is a huge power grab for their side. And unfortunately, this kind of mentality is radiating down through all federal court appointments. And so many judges that have vacated their seats are not getting replaced because the confirmation process is being held up for all of those as well because of politics. And you know know what I'm realizing here is we're saying that there needs to be modernization or there needs to be modification to this process. But I'm honestly not sure what we could propose because you know the problem is any any policy or any reform of this system requires both sides to take it in good faith and not take advantage of the system when it benefits them exactly we could say oh the best way to do the supreme court would be just to do it by popular vote and eliminate the senate from this calculation altogether mm-hmm. but then we have gerrymandered districts and that alters the voting outcomes and could affect who gets voted into the supreme court mm. gerrymandering is definitely an episode we should be doing we should definitely do an episode on gerrymandering i guess at, at least what we can do here is point out that here are some problems with the confirmation process uh, even if we don't necessarily on this one have a solution for how it could be fixed the solution is everybody in congress is stopping assholes not if only Okay, if we can't make any modifications to the nomination process, let's say the court stays exactly how it is, there's no term limits, the size stays the same. Do you think that the Supreme Court, as is, is still legitimate? Do you think that it's lost some relevance? Or do you think that potentially we would have to make one or more of these changes to bring its relevancy back? In an effort to make an apolitical arm of the federal government, it has inadvertently become the most political arm of the federal government in some aspects, and it exerts too much control in inappropriate ways because of how it is formed by other interested parties. I think the court is relevant in the sense that if anybody begins to regard the court as irrelevant and doesn't take the nomination and confirmation process as seriously, they potentially lose power and opportunity. And it's kind of a brinksmanship game to nobody wants to engage in this battle every single time there's a vacancy. But the second that you don't, you lose your potential to control the interpretation of law for potentially 30 or 40 years in the country. So it's irrelevant in the sense that it doesn't have to be this way, but we artificially make it this way by participating in the system. And what about you? What do you think about the influence and relevance of the court? Well, I definitely think, first of all, that there have to be term limits. You know, as I said earlier, this is sort of just my general philosophy that if we're talking about representation and the identities of the people that we have in government, I think age is an identity that also 
should be representative. And it's just not even less so than gender or race, to be honest. So assuming that we have term limits on the Supreme Court, I actually don't have a problem with it because we're complaining about Trump. We're complaining about McConnell, but they got elected. So there's a sense of that democratic process. If Trump is the president because he got elected, then he gets to nominate people. If McConnell is in charge of Congress because Republicans hold the majority, as much as I really don't like that guy, it's his right to run the confirmation process. But I think that if we trust in the democratic system, then the party and people who deserve to be in power are going to be in power. The problem is without term limits on the Supreme Court, the, quote, maybe wrong people can sit through the periods of time where democracy has called for a change and just wait it out. Whereas if we have a quicker rotation, even if it's 18 years, I think that the democratic process would check for a lot of the problems that we're talking about in this episode. So is the current Supreme Court that we have right now legitimate? Mm, I'd say it's one and a half people in the wrong direction, as we talked about earlier. Is the Supreme Court as an institution legitimate? I'd say if we added in term limits, yes. Um, do I think that the Supreme Court in the long run is going to do good? I'd, I'd like to think. I'm breaking from my normal jaded stance, and I'd like to think that it would in the future. With shifting demographics and shifting populations in the country and the impacts that that will have on who's in the White House and who's in Congress, I think that will trickle down to the Supreme Court and we'll have the right makeup eventually. It's very optimistic of you and very trusting of a democratic process that I'm not sure I trust. I just think that a lot of a certain kind of people are going to be dying in the next 20 years and a lot of another type of people are not. And uh, I feel I feel OK about that. That's the kind of jaded tone that I was looking for. <laughs> Whether or not the court changes anytime soon, we at least have some confirmation hearings to look forward to in the next month or so. And we look forward to seeing how those proceed and what you all think of how the court looks currently and how it's going to look in the future. Mm -hmm. And if anything controversial happens, as usual, you'll get to hear about it here. Thank you for listening to this episode and we will see you next time. Bye-bye. Take care.